isn't it amazing that we are part of a family that's uh, not just in Estes Park? Isn't it awesome to know that we get to pray for brothers and sisters that are in the other part of the world and our God is still there with them and that we can actually care for them? Isn't it awesome that when we went through our horrible thing, when the flood hit, we had, we had believers that were in Europe praying for us. We had believers that were in Africa praying for us. We had believers that were in Asia praying for us and South America and all over the United States and not just prayers, but they were sending help and encouragement and support. We're not alone. Isn't that an amazing thing? This is not some giant social club that God made us a part of. We are the family of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Look how amazing that is. And the love that we have that brings us together is not an imaginary kind of love. It's something that only God can bring. And we're going to see that today, how that, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, how did it grow, even in a hostile environment? I don't know about you, but... Uh, especially now as we get into uh, fight season, I, I mean election season, um, you know, as we're getting into that, haven't you, doesn't it feel like the world kind of goes crazy, right? It doesn't it feel like there should be somebody out there that says, like, in this corner, we're this person, like, like, even in your uh, family meals sometimes, it can kind of feel that way, where we're pitted against each other in a crazy way from our fellow Americans, from the people in our own homes. I mean, it, it's insane. I, I feel like sometimes as I was watching some of the debates or things like this, it feels like uh, uh, the world has just gone upside down, right? I mean, things that we, everybody used to rally around now are becoming points of contention. And uh, I think sometimes as Christians that we're in the midst of this, it can really feel like you've just lost your mind. It, it really, I don't know, just me? <laughs> no, you guys feel this. Oh, okay. I found, too, that as a as a pastor as, as one that, that God has given us his word and, and I see how righteous he is and how good he is and, and for the millennia we look back how his word actually works, how it puts together families and lives and societies and all of that where we're, for a long time we had lifted up his word and we said it held the moral high ground, right? It was the standard for us. The Judeo-Christian ethic really helped us that now it seems like that there's outrage mobs that hold the upper ground, doesn't it? Like they have like, they, they own the moral high ground. They sh- it's just crazy. And I think sometimes that it, it can make us either scared or angry or frustrated or it can just make you laugh. But uh, how is it supposed to be? How is a church supposed to exist in an environment where oftentimes we just get shouted down? Where just by the existence of saying, I believe in Jesus, all of a sudden, People paint you with such horrible brushes, say that you're such awful kinds of things when you're none of them. How, how does the church begin to, have a, uh, to grow in, in, a, in a culture like that? Can it grow in a culture like that? Well, the good news is yes. In fact, the church has always grown through cultures like that because people have always been a little bit crazy. And today we see in God's Word a perfect example of that as we go into the, uh, Acts 17. But of course, before we get to Acts 17, we have a memory verse because disciples of Jesus know the Word of God. And so every series we have a new verse that we memorize together. It becomes a filter for us. It begins to change us and our hearts and our minds, that transformation. And so the memory verse we have for this series is Acts 20, 24. And so this is our our fourth time that we've been into it. And so hopefully it's starting to stick a little bit. But if you're brand new with us today, 
Don't freak out. It's super duper easy. All you have to do is just read along with me a few times and pretty soon it'll start to stick. Okay, so here we go. Say it along with me. Three, two, one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, Acts 20, 24. Now, let me tell you how this passage has really helped me, right? We talked about last week how I have a hard time with that first portion. I consider my life worth nothing to me. I personally can't honestly say that I'm where Paul was when he wrote that. And how I know that is when people infringe upon my comfort zone in my life, I tend to get irritated, right? I, my life is not worth nothing to me. In fact, my time seems to be very important to me, especially when I'm driving and there's a slow person in front of me, right? That's taking pictures of the elk on the side of the road. And we're like, just pull over, right? Then, then my life seems very valuable to me. And my only aim at that moment isn't to complete the task. My only aim is to get around them and to do my things, right? So I'm not there yet, but God is beginning to change me. And so these last few weeks, as I've been able to, uh, as, as I've been offended by people, and there's a lot of opportunity to be offended, uh, what'll happen, I'll have that rage moment, I'll be, ah, right? And then God's word will remind me, and it's getting quicker now. Before I would be like a rage, and then like a couple minutes later, be like, oh yes. And then I would say, I consider my life worth nothing to me, <sighs> right? My only aim is to finish, right? <laughs> now it's starting to come quicker, right? Sometimes mid-tantrum, the word comes alive. And it's like, you know what, I do. There is a task. And what is the task? It's not my task. The task the Lord Jesus has given to me. And what is that task? Is my task to be right? Is it to make people... No, it's to testify to good news. That's the task. This is we got the happiest job in the universe. Our job, tell people good news, right? You could work for the IRS. Instead, you work for Jesus. Think how amazing that is. It begins to change me. I've noticed I'm becoming less and less angry. Slowly, more and more patient. That's the word of God alive. So I encourage you, take time this week and begin to meditate, memorize, begin to apply this to you. And you'll see God begin to change you. We've got a tool to help you with that. On your uh, connection card, you'll notice there was that little perforated portion right there on the side there. That's a memory verse card. That's a tool that we create just for you. You can take that and just pull it off and then you put that in your pocket, right? And then you carry it out. And then throughout the week, as uh, you have opportunity to be reminded of the fact that it's not about me, you can pull it out and you can remember and let God's word do a work in your heart. Okay, let's get into God's word since this is uh, one of the reasons why we came today. We are in the book of Acts chapter 17. If you have one of our Bibles, you want to buy Bibles today, it's going to be on page 772. If uh, you forgot your Bible today, don't worry. We've got a whole bookshelf full of them right there at the sound booth. You're welcome to use one of those. And if you need a Bible, please keep it. It would be our gift to you. Now, as you turn there, a little history, since we are reading through Acts in order, chapter by chapter, there's some things that happened in the previous chapter, chapter 16. We saw that Paul and Silas, uh, they and Timothy and Luke, they had a great ministry in Philippi and did some amazing things. If you missed that message, you can hear it on funchurch.com. You can also read the previous chapter right there in the Bible. And uh, we find that now they're done at Philippi. Right? And now they're ready to head out and to begin planting new churches. So this is what it says here in 17.1. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilius and Pollyanna, and they came to Thessalonica. And if those mean nothing to you, they mean nothing to most people. So I created a map for you. See, Philippi is where that little circle is up top there. It looks going to wiggle. See, that's Philippi. That's where it begins. And there's a little white dot that's going to come. This is their path. 
They passed through all of those, and they went to Thessalonica. This is where they landed. Why would they go to Thessalonica? Well, Thessalonica was an important city, right? Philippi was a really important city. Now they go to Thessalonica. It was another big city, a very influential place. In fact, it was the capital of Macedonia. So it was a place of great authority and power. It was a free city. It was a powerful, awesome place, right? And so if you were the Apostle Paul and you wanted to share the good news of God's grace to people, you would probably go to places that lots of people are. And that's where he went. Now, something interesting that happens that when Paul goes to Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, uh, it was a, not just an important place, but it was a place that was kind of unique, a little different than a lot of the other places. It was a free city, not just a Roman city, right? Because they were Greek, and the Romans looked up to the Greeks in a way, but also it had a different kind of leadership. In fact, there were leaders there in Thessalonica that, that the Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he refers to them as politarchs. Right? And so that means nothing to you or to me, but it meant a whole lot to people who were studying the word before us. They would, uh, they would look at that and say, Polytarch, that's not an official title in Rome. And because of that, there were those who criticized the faith for quite a period of time that said Paul or Luke was a fraud. There's no way Luke could have gone to Thessalonica because he says there's this crazy thing it's called Polytarchs that are like leaders in the city. And we know Polytarchs don't exist. The Bible must be a fraud. And that's what they believed until archaeologists discovered an arch in Thessalonica as they were uncovered. They were doing some ancient digs and a big old arch there. It has an inscription on it that says, in the time of the Polytarchs and lists the Polytarchs that were the officials of the city at just the same time that Paul would have been there. Isn't it awesome how oh, the word of God continues to reveal itself to be true? And Rashi, we get to talk about that a little bit today. I just think that's pretty cool. Now, Paul shows up in this big city and what does he do? Well, as is his custom, he goes to the synagogue. Right? And as he goes to the synagogue, he begins to share the gospel. Right? He stays there for three weeks, and every week he's there and he's reasoning from Scripture. He shows in the Scripture, in a rational, good way, how Jesus proved himself to be the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. And amazing thing happens. People, when they, the Thessalonians, when they began to read the Scripture and, and they understood what Paul was showing them, telling them about Jesus, and they're showing how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, they were like, yes. Jesus really is the Messiah. And a good number of them accept him as the Messiah. And they come to faith. And it's an amazing thing. And there's great joy because the Messiah had come. And not only that, but he shares the good news that it's not just for the people of Israel, but the Gentiles are also included. And so there were some God-fearing Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, in this city who also believed this. And they have the church begins to grow, and it's fantastic. But of course... Whenever the church begins to grow, it makes it, it unseats the, the positions of power that be, and it makes some people uncomfortable. And so there were those in Thessalonica that the word says that they became jealous. They didn't like what Paul had to say. And so instead of debating him because they couldn't, Paul was just going through rationally, through Scripture, just saying this, read it for yourself. This is how Jesus said these things. And they couldn't do that. So what did they do? Well, Scripture says in here that they went down to the, to the downtown area and they got a mob. Verse 5, um, it said they were jealous, so they went to the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city, right? They form an outrage mob. Mobs are not rational organizations, right? Uh, you've never met somebody that says, yes, I am the uh, secretary of the mob. I keep the minutes. It doesn't happen that way, right? Mobs are just groups of people that would rather be angry and love to hate something together, 
right? They shout people down instead of listen and reason and discuss and debate. And so Paul was shouted down. This mob goes through the city, and, and uh, Paul and his buddies, they were staying at this guy's house named Jason. Jason was a, a wonderful early believer, uh, just an awesome guy. And uh, so when the mob is coming, one nice thing about mobs is typically they're noisy, so you can hear them coming. And uh, so Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, they were able to hear him, and so they were able to escape, right? And so when the mob gets to Jason's house, you know, they're breaking the law, and then they, they throw open the door, and guess what? Paul's gone. So what do they do? They take Jason. They pull him out before the city courts. I love mob logic. They're like, these guys are upsetting the whole city. And you're like, no, mob, you're upsetting the city, right? In the name of peace and justice, we demand that these guys be cast. You're like, you are the ones that are upsetting peace and justice, right? Mobs will violate their own rationality pretty much all the time. In the name of tolerance, they become very intolerant. In the name of love, they become very, very unloving, right? Isn't it crazy how mobs work? They've worked the same throughout all of history because people are pretty much the same. And so you have this mob and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're like, okay, we need to leave. And so Jason gets brought before them, the, the city government, they, they say, all right, even you were hospitable, shame on you, you have to post bail, right? Has there ever been through time in history where mobs uh, twist justice and things like this to try to silence people that uh, try to speak truth? Yeah, it's nothing new. So Paul and Silas, they're like, all right, so they started the church, they built the church, and later Paul would write back to the Thessalonians. He would actually visit there again later in his, his ministry, but he would encourage them. We actually have two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica and, and through the Holy Spirit that he wrote them. It's called First and Second Thessalonians. So when you read them, that's who it was originally written to. Well, now that they are not going to be able to stay in Thessalonica because the mob was there, instead of staying there and declaring a civil war, what do they do? They leave, and so where do they go? They go to this little town called Berea, and you can see the little white dot, and there's Berea, not very far away. Isn't that handy? It's only about 50 miles away. Why 50 miles? Because if you're walking, 50 miles is actually pretty far, right? That's part of one of the reasons. And so they go to Berea, but it's also another large, wealthy city. The Bereans had a nice, large synagogue that was there. The Paul and Silas, they go in there. Paul begins again to reason with the people from Scripture. That's what it says. He reasoned with them, showing them in the Word that Jesus is legitimate, that he actually came, using, answering their doubts, all those types of things. And, and the Bereans, it said, were more noble than the Thessalonians. It said that they actually studied these things for themselves. And because they studied these things, and verse 11, it says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true.
I love how our faith is not a trust me story. It's one of the reasons I'm a Christian. It's a test me story. That Jesus says, I'm going to ask you to risk your eternity on something. I'm going to give you some evidence. And that's exactly what they did. They tested. They looked in the word and they said, you know what? Jesus did fulfill all these things. This makes sense. And so in verse 12, it says, as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Isn't that awesome? Then when they looked in the Word, were able to have a dialogue and a conversation. It resulted in faith. That was pretty awesome. And so things were going pretty good, except then that outrage mob that started in Thessalonica. Something about mobs that sometimes, I don't know what gets into them, but they are very persistent. And they have decided that their only job in life is to ruin Paul. They're going to ruin Paul. And so they make a 50-mile journey. Think how mad you have to be. Right? Get that guy. And they follow him down. You know where Paul is. And they find him. And then they cause another riot in the name of peace and justice. Right? And they're going to kick him out in the name of tolerance and love. That's exactly what they do. And so the church is already beginning to grow there in this, but uh, Paul didn't have as much time to spend there, so he leaves, he has to escape, because his presence there was putting the other Christians there at risk. And so he has to escape. But he leaves some of his companions behind. Timothy, he leaves back there. He leaves Silas there. He says, listen, when it's safe for you guys to come follow me, I'm going to go to another place called Athens. Now, where is Athens compared to Berea? Well, there's the white dot going all the way down, and there is Athens. Long enough, far enough away that most outrage mobs won't want to follow. All right. Well, also, why would he go to Athens? Well, Athens was the ancient birthplace of democracy. It was an important city, wasn't it? It was, even though at the time of Paul, in the time of the Romans, that it wasn't the center of the world like it had been earlier, but it was still important. I think that we would think of it something like one of our Ivy League colleges or something like this, right? It was like the Harvard of the time. It's where the, 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 the center of thought, right? This is where there was, the city was filled with all kinds of people who loved, loved ideas and discuss ideas and debate ideas, right? So this would be a great place for Paul. But interestingly enough, as we find sometimes that those uh, institutions and places are, there was also a very spiritual place. And as Paul walks into Athens, there's all of these statues all around these, of, of all of these pagan gods that people would just worship on the street corner because that's where God would hang out, right? So they've got all of these gods all over the place and, and says that Paul, when he's going through, is deeply troubled. He's not mad at the people, but he's troubled. That these people who seek God with their whole mind and, and their whole life, right? They're trying to, to intellectually get it right, just hadn't known. In fact, they wanted to cover their bases so much that in that city, they actually had a pillar that didn't have anything on it that said, this is for the unknown God, because who knows? That's where it was. And so what does Paul do? When he goes into the city... And he goes to the synagogue and he starts reasoning and from there and some, there are a few that come to faith. But then also he goes into the street corners. He goes to the markets because these are the type of people who want to discuss these things. I think the best, probably closest idea that we have what Athens would be is like we went down to Boulder, right? Boulder's got University of Colorado, one of the best universities in our country. You've got some of the top and brightest minds that are out there, right? So and it, it's filled with people that want to go and to fill their head with knowledge, Right? And, and have that idea. It's also, if you go to Boulder, it's a really spiritual city, isn't it? I mean, they worship everything there. 
right? They really do. And so Paul goes right into the midst of that, and he begins reasonably, rationally explaining the faith. And there were people there that were interested. He would go to little coffee shops in the Starbucks. He would say, hey, you know, here's this idea. What about this? And they were like, wow, a real living God? Tell us more. And they didn't understand because their philosophies were so different. And so some of them said, this guy's a nut. And others were like, yeah, but he makes some good points. So they invite him to the Areopagus, which is not only fun to say, it was a really big privilege the Areopagus was actually named for a hill that was outside, just on the other side of, of Athens, but it was where the, the basically the cultural council of Athens would meet. Not the seat of government, but the seat of culture. And so later on, by Paul's time, it, it actually met in a different place, it kind of was, but it kept that same name, that same title. And the idea is where these were the top thinkers of all of Greece were there to discuss and debate and to find out what Paul had to say. And I think it's amazing that when Paul steps up, we see that he gives an incredible, incredible description of, of the faith to a group of people who have no background in what it is. In fact, you can read that sermon if in there that it was actually recorded. And when the Bible records a sermon, it's usually a good idea to read it because there's, you know, there's a lot of things that were preached. Here's an actual message. This is what Paul talked about. And if think about the impact of this message because today, when you say Western thought, what comes to mind? Judeo-Christian ethic. Isn't it amazing that Paul went to the center? I tell you, in Paul's day, Western thought was not the Judeo-Christian ethic. In Paul's day, Western thought was Stoicism, Epicureanism, right? It was all of these pantheistic kind of things. It was multiple gods and all of that. Paul was there. This is a message that changed the course, the mind of the world. You want to read a powerful message? Well, it's in there in verse 22. It begins, and I love, and I'm not going to read you the whole thing because I want you to read it this week for yourselves, but I love how it begins. It says, Paul stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus, and he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And I imagine he had to choke out a couple of smirks. He was like, right? For as I walked around, I looked carefully at the objects of worship. I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I love how he begins. He doesn't like put them down. He says, listen, even you know you have this need. And he starts where they were at. With the Jews, he would start with scripture. But you don't see Paul opening up. He says, well, in the Torah, we have 30, 300 different uh, prophecies about Jesus because the people of the Areopagus, they couldn't care less. But he began with where they were, and he reasoned with them why God is real, how he came in the person of Jesus. And the coolest thing was is that they were, they were tracking with him. They were fascinated by this until Paul got to this crazy part. He told them some stuff first. He said, God is real. And they were like, yes, he created all things. They're like, absolutely, that makes sense, right? He, God became a person. And they're like, okay, we could see that. You're like, Zeus may come down. Okay, we get that. He, God died. And they're like, okay, yeah, we're good with that. And then he rose from the dead. And then they're like, what? What is this insanity? Like, <laughs> that's the problem you have? But that's the problem they had. And they're like, people don't rise from the dead. And you're like, that's why it's a miracle. But uh, so they, they started arguing and Paul was like, okay. And so he had to stop there. It says that after his, his conversation, he didn't get the end of, of, his, of his sermon. His, but it said that some believed, some wanted to know more and said, hey, we'd like to discuss this. And others were like, nah, I don't want it. 
So what does Paul do? Does he go back to those who didn't believe and be like, you guys are horrible? No. He moves on to the next thing. Right? He shared with those who were willing to listen. He planted the seeds of the church. It took several generations. I'll tell you, in Paul's day, when Paul left Athens, I almost guarantee Paul felt like it was a failure. Right? Because it was a small number of people who believed, not like the other cities. And I think it's re- kind of funny how when you go to religious places, how oftentimes religious people, right, do not, are so resistant to, to seeing, to having faith. Right? Uh, so he went to this uh, intellectual religious thing and they want to just talk about God. But, so he left and it didn't seem like he made much of a difference. Of course, now we know he made a huge difference. The, the mind of the world was changed uh, that day. I think it's pretty awesome. So then Paul leaves, and then we'll pick up the story next week from there. So that's what happens in uh, chapter 17. I just gave you an overview. I want you to read it yourself. But I want to pick out four lessons that we can learn from chapter 17. And the first lesson I think is important for us today is this, is that our faith is reasonable. It's a reasonable faith, and it's important for us to get this. Because there's a lot of irrational faiths out there. Right? And I think sometimes that we as Christians have been painted with that irrational brush because a lot of people hold beliefs and faiths and things that are just make no sense. Right? I remember there's a time that my mom was, uh, when she was in uh, some New Age stuff and the belief that we're all vibrations and things like this and definitely believed it. Right? And, and a lot of people did, not to put her down. Like she's one of the most intelligent people I know. But there was a thing that she had to come to a point where she's like, well, I guess I just have to accept this. Right? It was an irrational decision. Now, later, she came back to Jesus. She made a, religion, like a, a rational decision back. I think it's an important to discover. But a lot of times, people hold irrational and unreasonable faith. But our faith from the beginning was never an unreasonable faith. In fact, we'll see that how our faith began. In Thessalonica, what is it Paul did? He went to those who would know better, right? And he took the Scripture to them, there, and he reasoned from them, from the Word, In fact, verse 2 and 3, I want you to get the words. It says, as was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from Scripture. Reasoned. That's not pounding somebody, beating them up with the Bible. That's reason. That's a discussion. That's answering questions. That's facing doubts and saying, well, let's see, there's some answers in here. Let's let's go to it. Let's have a discussion. That's not browbeating somebody into submission. He reasoned with them. When Paul went to Berea, he reasoned with them, didn't he? The first thing he did, he went into the synagogues and he used Scripture and he reasoned with them. He said, all right. And how about in Athens when he couldn't use Scripture? What did he do? He reasoned with them. He said, even your own prophets, even your own poets talk about these things. He uses logic and rationality because our faith is a rational faith. It's not a blind faith. And it's important for us to start there. I think sometimes that we get upset And we become defensive because we forget that our faith is actually based upon reality. And so we feel like we have to defend this thing. Our God, our faith doesn't need our defense. It is self-defending. It is self-evident. It just needs a rational conversation to prove that it's true. The second thing I think is important, though, is that we recognize not just our faith is reasonable, but reason requires faith. Right? You can't be a reasonable person if you don't express faith. Now think about today. Could you live life without faith? And I, and I think the thing is, oftentimes we assign faith, we attach it only to spiritual matters, and that's silly. We use faith all the time. Faith is trusting something you haven't proven. So let me ask you today, uh, before you sat down in your chairs, did you all check to make sure I didn't pull out the screws? No, but you, by faith, sat, didn't you? 
You put all of your weight right down there, risking embarrassment, humiliation, and probably bodily injury. You trusted a lot that I didn't, you know, sabotage this. Or how about, did any of you have that coffee? How do you know I didn't poison it? Did you test it? No, but by faith, you sipped away. Right? How about when you walked into this building? Did you have to go through and look at the engineering plans to make sure that the roof wasn't going to fall down today, that this is a a well-maintained building? Did you test everything to make sure we're safe? No, by faith, you walked in and you said, I'm going to trust this. I haven't proven it, but I'm going to trust it. Last time you filled your car with gas, did you test to make sure that chemically they're actually giving you petrol, right? That you're getting all those octanes that you're paying for? Did you test that? Did you test to make sure that when it says that you paid for a gallon, that you actually got a gallon? Or do you carry around a little weight and measure and chemical test every time you fill up your tank? Now, I guarantee most of us express faith throughout life. Everything we do requires faith. And if you don't live with faith, you are something called crazy. Right? Can you imagine the person before they eat a donut? They've got to take it apart molecularly. They say, is that wheat? Okay, that's sugar. And it's in the right proportions. Okay, it's safe to eat. That would be crazy. Faith is required for life. The question is not, do we have faith? All of us have faith. The question is, is your faith reasonable? Because there's a difference between reasonable faith and unreasonable faith. For example, let's just say I set before you at breakfast two glasses. And one of them is slimy and muddy and dark and bleak looking. And the other one is orange and liquidy and it looks kind of fruity and nice. And I said, uh, that orange one is orange juice, and you believed me. Would that be a reasonable faith? Yeah, because it looks like orange juice. The evidence around it looks like orange juice. It smells like orange juice. You don't have to test it. That it's Irrationally, it makes sense it's orange juice. Now, if I came to you the same thing, and I pointed to the slimy one, and I said, that's orange juice, would it be reasonable for you to believe me that that's the orange juice? No, because all the evidence would point to the contrary. Now, you could make that blind leap and say, well, Aaron hasn't lied to me before, you know, and you'd drink mud. Reasonable faith is what God wants us to have, and reason requires faith. Here's the thing, that we all have faith. We have to direct it into the right place, and that's why it's important to start with our faith is reasonable. Because once God has revealed himself to us, right, when God not just fulfilled the prophecies, but then he, he did so not in a closet, but in front of all people that it could be, there was tons of witnesses in actual time and space that was written about. Even those that were critics said, yeah, it happened. When he died and he rose again, he didn't do so, you know, just in a back closet. He did it publicly to the point that there was governors and stuff writing rules and laws about, hey, what are we going to do about this, right? It was public. See, but God didn't just say, trust me, I exist. He showed up in the flesh. And in the flesh, not in the private, but in public, he did things that only a God can do. He healed people's bodies of sickness, right? He walked on water and calm storms. He made fish sandwiches for crowds when he only had enough for one. Now, he did things that people can't do so that we would know he's more than a people. Best of which, most verifiable, he died on a cross. I, a couple months, a month ago, I saw where he was crucified, and I saw where he was buried, and I will tell you, eyewitness, he's not there. He rose again, and he didn't just rise again in secret. He didn't just come out and say, hey, guys, I'm here. 
He came out and says, I'm back. And for 40 days in the very city where they killed him, he walked around and did things and met with people and ate with them so he knew he wasn't a ghost. Right? He did all kinds of stuff so we would know that God exists, that God loves us, and that he has not abandoned us. But when we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, when we go back through and we read what the Messiah was to do and why he did what he did, we understand who God is and we recognize who he is, then that faith requires something of us, doesn't it? Once we know, we've got to act. And so reason requires faith. And that's where we stand. Next thing we understand in this, though, this is, deals, man, this does deal with our world today, is that rational faith offends the irrational. Then we could say, preach that, right? Amen. Right, I'll do it for myself. Isn't that true? Rational faith will offend the irrational. From the very beginning, it was outrage mobs, not those that would debate that tried to shut down the church and the gospel. It was true then, it is true now. Well, this is the way that it is. Why? Well, because when you have a position that is not, I would say, honestly, intellectually, honestly defensible, then how are you supposed to defend your position? You don't. So you try to shut down other people. And you project upon them saying, well, if my position is just by blind faith, theirs must be too. And we have more power. And I want things my way. And so we see throughout church history from the very beginning till today that we find that those, there were irrational groups of mobs and people who have no care what the word has to say, don't want to discuss faith. They just want to shut you down. And some of them do it in person, some of them try to do it through shame, some of them try to do it through outreach mobs, outrage mobs. And they'll do crazy things. They'll say, we're keeping the order by breaking the peace, right? And, and we are going to, to, to make sure that there is tolerance by not tolerating you. And we're going to make sure that everybody's loved because we all hate you, right? This is what will happen. And it'll make you feel like you're in a crazy world. Because the world really is crazy, but that's Okay. It started that way. Does the church, did the church end in the first century? No. People have been like this forever, and the church continues to grow, so we don't have to get all freaked out. We can be like, okay. We recognize that there is going to be irrational reactions to a very rational faith. Why is that? Well, I think that sometimes when you have the irrational, they exchange power for truth, Right? It makes them more comfortable because it's how they understand the world. So better not change that. And so we seek power and to control the ability of what other people are going to think, gosh darn it, instead of seeking what is actually true. Now the good news, the last point in this, is that truth overcomes power. It does. Every day of the week, truth overcomes power. So we don't have to worry about the powers of this world. What is truth? Well, truth is that which corresponds to reality. That's, if you want to philosophically, that's the answer. There's something out there that's real, and truth just says, it corresponds, it says, what what I'm saying is true, it points to what is actually there, right? For example, if I say this is a Bible, in reality, this is a Bible. And so if I say it's a Bible, my words correspond to the the actual reality of what it is. If I said it's a pickle, right, then it would not be speaking truth. Make sense? Now, the cool thing about this is that God's word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He corresponds to the greatest reality. He is God. Everything comes from him, right? And so he's able to show us as it is. It's in the word, it shows that God's word is truth. It comes from God. So it represents moral reality and spiritual reality as the way it actually is. And so we have truth. 
And how does this truth overcome power? Well, Acts 17 talks about one way that this truth overcomes power. This is in Paul's his, his, uh, discussion with the Athenians. He says this, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. What ignorance? Worshiping whatever you wanted. In the past, God had grace for that. He overlooked it. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, which is Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, the first thing we recognize is that uh, you can't deny reality forever. It will eventually find you. It is eventually there. And that's why truth eventually overcomes. Now, for some, like when Paul was talking to, for the rational people that were there, truth overcame their, their way that they wanted to think by just, just the discussion. Right? Truth overcomes power by dispelling ignorance through actually education and learning and, and saying this is what God has to say. It overcomes the, the power of doubt. It overcomes the power of ignorance. It has the ability to do that. When you are able to be rational and to sit down and to look at God's word and to judge it by what it has the ability to lead you to a very rational faith. It's a powerful thing. So truth overcomes that kind of power and it's it's where it's seen best. And we saw it happen in Thessalonica. We saw it happen in Berea. We saw it happen in Athens. God's word continues to work that way. And in our world, there are people who are seeking. They don't know Jesus, but it doesn't mean they're evil. And you can have a conversation with them. And you can talk about belief. And you can point them to Christ through Scripture. You can actually use history and all kinds of things to show them the reality, the rationality of our faith. And it brings them to faith. It's, it's amazing to see the power of God overcome the power of, of uh, ignorance and the power of disbelief. It's an amazing thing. Truth overcomes that power. But there are also some in our world that are irrational, that just want to hate this because they just want to hate it. You're wrong because you're wrong. That's just it. And there's no reasoning with them. That's an unreasonable person or an irrational person. How about them? How will truth overcome that? Well, you see that it doesn't overcome it by waging a rational war. We don't find Paul and Silas forming a counter mob, do we? We don't see Paul and Silas standing in the Areopagus and say, hey, you listen to all these other things, you need to listen to this too. You don't see him browbeating the irrational into submission. It doesn't work. Jesus even said, don't throw pearls before swine. That's a waste of time. Instead, he shared with the willing, and then what did he do? He prayed for the unwilling. Do you know that Paul himself was irrational at one point? Now he was out, he was part of the first outrage mob, killing the Christians the most. And God got a hold of him. And there we start with this is that truth will overcome the irrational, it overcomes pride. At some point, when we have this guttural reaction against God, that's usually from self, it's of selfish pride. We don't want to let God take the throne in our life because we want to keep it. Or we don't want to let God in because he might find things that we don't want him to see, and then we realize that God loves us, and he already sees those things anyway, and he's already paid for them. But God changes even the irrational. Oftentimes in this world, we pray for them, and he changes their hearts, and he changes their life, and he meets them where they're at. He doesn't call us to. He does that. We pray for them, and we serve them. We don't fight them. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. That's what the Word says, and it's been working for thousands of years. Why would it stop now? And that's what we do. And we let God transform. 
That's what we do. And when somebody comes from a point of irrationality to a point they want to talk, then we talk. We don't have to force the faith on anybody. We just offer it. And then ultimately, yes, there will be some that are out there that just want to hate God. For their very dying breath, they will just fight against it. They will do horrible violence to the church. Guess what? There's a day of judgment coming. God's got that. They get to stand before God and say why they stood against him and his kingdom. That's between him and them. And we don't have to be part of that. Isn't that good too? See, our only job is to testify to the good news of God's grace. So how do we then apply these things? Well, I think the first thing that we, we need to look at is we need to make room for reason. In each of our lives, I think it's important that we understand that our faith really does make sense. It actually aligns with reality that God has revealed his truth to us. And so like it says in 2 Timothy, where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, listen, uh, do your best to present yourself as uh, to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You know what that means? Know your Bible and apply it. We don't want to be hypocrites that know all of the word and don't live it. Then why would anybody listen to us? We also don't want to be these kind of Christians that live these very holy lives but have no idea what the book says. We have to know what it says so we can have reasonable, rational conversations with people so it's not, well, well, I just believe this because I've always believed it. Because the church says. No, go through and understand it. And if you don't know how to read the Bible... We've got Bible training plans. You could talk to me. I'll help you begin studying it so you can build. There's life groups. Sermons are a great place to start, right? Start to know the word and begin to apply it. And then as you begin to apply God's word, make sure that you, as the best you're able to, begin to walk in this new way. Not perfectly, but as God tells you to do something, do it. Trust him. Even if it's not convenient. Like we talked about last week, you never know when God's going to use unexpected righteousness. Next thing we want to do is not just make room for reason, but we also need to make room for faith. In the Western world, we have gone through this time where we've been like, well, if, I, if it's not proven to me, then I'm not going to do anything. But none of us practice that, as we talked about. When was the last time you tested the gas in the gas tank? There's, there's faith in every part of our life. Make room for faith here as well. Just make sure it's a reasonable faith. Don't open your brain up and start believing all kinds of crazy things that are out there. God has revealed himself. He actually came in the flesh so we could know him. But when he gets there, we need to make sure that we're making room for him. In 2 Timothy, it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's going to require, if you want to be thoroughly equipped, you're going to actually trust that God knows what he's talking about and his word's not going to tell you something that's wrong. Or that, that's faith. Once God has proven himself to you, you've got to stop questioning him and start allowing him to just... Begin to direct your life, and I tell you, it, it goes pretty well. I tell you, the next thing that we need to do is we need to make room for reasonable faith. Right? In our lives, we don't want to believe anything. Romans 12 says this, I therefore urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God, for this is your reasonable way to, for you to worship. Doesn't it make sense to follow God? If you know that God has told you to do something and then you obey it, doesn't that make sense? That's not the right, reasonable thing to do. I mean, if you know God told you to do something, you're like, God, no, thank you. That's pretty irrational because it's God, right? So rational faith says to God, okay, Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. I'm going to do what he says. And so it says, live your life as, as uh, off your bodies as living sacrifices. You know what that means? Die to yourself. Stop being so selfish. If you try to live this life for what benefits you only or first, you're missing the point. 
Jesus said, if you want to keep your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, living sacrifice, you find real life. How true is that? How many marriages are enriched when husbands and wives stop being so darn selfish and start seeking each other's needs first? How many businesses actually grow and can be healthy and good when, when business owners and employees stop being so darn selfish and believing there's this war between them and start saying, you know what, I want to provide a great place of work for you. I want to give you my very best, right? This is, I'm going to do things not just for me. Then when I begin to live my life that benefits others, it actually comes around and benefits all, us all. That's, what, that's a Christian belief, and we see it true. We have to start by stop being so darn selfish to die to ourselves. And uh, counterintuitively, when we do that, we find that our lives get better. But we shouldn't do it just to make our lives better. We have to be like Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing. My only aim is to finish the task, complete the task, finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And so we apply this to confirm our lives to the truth. And then we repent. And that just means we turn over the, the right to live life how I want to, over to God, and I begin to live more and more the way that I know He wants me to. And as I do that, God begins to transform me from the inside, and it's an amazing thing. So, how would, what do we do? How do we apply? Three things. Make room for reason, make room for faith, and make room for reasonable faith. Aren't you happy how simple our faith is? It's such an awesome thing. So for you, how are you going to do that? Well, in your... Uh, notes on your, on your connection card, I have some next steps for you to apply. Here they are. Some things that you can do to be to make room for reason or faith or reasonable faith. And for you, your next steps today might be this. Maybe it's to start by memorizing Acts 20, 24. You've seen today how I've been applying it to my life and it is transforming me, right? I'm starting to apply God's truth to my life and it's doing some pretty crazy things. It's good stuff. Maybe that's where you begin. Or how about you? Maybe you start this week by reading Acts 17. It's a half a page for crying out loud. It's not long, but it is powerful. It will show you, isn't this passage, isn't this uh, very apropos for the days in which we live? Would you want to read how the church grows in times like these? Read it for yourself. Maybe what you do this week is pray for, and there's a blank. This is what I would say. There's a blank there because I don't know all the people you know. And it would be inappropriate for me to write down all the people's names of the people that you know. But you know one. Maybe it's somebody you know that is reasonable. Somebody that you know is, is a seeker. Somebody who, who has questions. Maybe they're not a believer in Christ yet, but they're at least open to discussing. Maybe you begin praying for them and saying, God, provide opportunity. Give me words. You know, pray for them. That you that, uh, you'll be able to uh, reason the faith with them. Begin. Or maybe it's an irrational person in your life. Somebody that just hates you because they have a chip on their shoulder against God or against Christianity or something like that, and you can't get a word in edgewise, maybe you pray for them. And you say to God, you know what? Uh, I can't, but you can, and so I'm going to be lifting them before you because God can change hearts. And here the thing is there's a blank there. If you put their name down, not only will you be praying for them this week, but then I will as well. And so you get a two-for-one. That's pretty good. Yeah, no, nah, even the first service they didn't laugh either. I should not go into direct sales. Okay, so the next thing is repent of. Repent of. This is turning our life. Maybe there's some things in your life you are having an irrational faith. You believe in Jesus, but you're not living like it. There are things in your life you know God wants you to do, but you're not doing them. This is your opportunity to say yes to God. 
Say, you know what, because this is what he wants you to do anyhow, so he'll give you a high five. God is there to celebrate those things. But I know it's hard to say to die to self and to say yes to God and to find that real life. So if there's something that's just gnawing at you, the Holy Spirit's in there saying, you know what, you need to let go of this thing. Let me know. I don't publish these. I'm the only one that will. And then uh, and Carissa, she gets to see them as well, but I get to read these, and I will be praying for you this week as you take the first steps of repentance. Let God do a work in you. And here in just a minute, we're going to take our offering. And as we do, of course, I encourage you to take your offering, put your um, offering in that envelope along with your uh, fifth Sunday gifts if you want to make one of those or the t- um, kingdom commitment. But also, I would say, in the offering basket, if you would drop this connection card in there, along with any prayer requests that you have, the commitments that you made, and uh, let this be an offering of your spirit back to God, an act of reasonable faith. Let's pray for the offering, and then uh, we'll let Zach come and uh, close us out with some really good worship. Let's, let's pray. Lord, Father, we love you. We thank you that you are the true living God. Now, Father, as we, uh, as we bring this portion of, of our worship service to coming to an end, to a point of decision, help us, Lord, to follow your lead. Uh, help us to follow you in a real, true way. Help us to make room for reason and for faith and for reasonable faith in our life. Let us be your witnesses in this world, effective to bring your gospel to those that we live around. Father, we pray for the commitments that we've made today. Each of us made something. Help us to keep those in a way that doesn't make us religious, but Father, helps us uh, know you better. Lord, we also pray that you would take our tithes and our gifts and our offerings and our fifth Sunday offering and that you would use those, Lord, as an investment in you and your kingdom an expression of our love, as an expression of worship, that you would build your kingdom for your righteousness that would result in your glory because you alone are worthy. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.